And it fits extremely well with our text of Scripture today found in Acts 21. If you'll make your way there, take your Bible, or for some of you, your phone. And I hope you're going to the Scripture with your phone. It's not time of the year to follow KC, but it is for St. Louis, right? So don't be looking at the Cardinals game on your phones or anything. Acts 21, I have many memories that flood my mind as I read Acts 21 because this passage is the very first one I preached uh, at Bowman Baptist Church for my first sermon when I was 19 years old. Yep, that's it. It, it, is, uh, it brings back a lot of memories when you get down to verse 13 and 14 and we hear what the Lord will say to us regarding the will of the Lord. I remember the sermon. It was called Doing the will of the Lord, and I had four points that I would change today because I'm going to change them in this sermon, but it was, Lord, take whatever you need to take out of my life to keep me from serving you. When's the last time you prayed that way? Second point was, Lord, send anything into my life that will get my attention and focus on you. Reveal anything in my life keeping me from being all that I need to be for you, and finally, Lord, lead me the way you would lead me in your will. That's a pretty good sermon, I think. But I would change it today because that was more topical. And I want to give you an exposition of Acts 21, 1 through 14. Listen to the word of the Lord. Keeping Kyle and Katie in your mind. And perhaps even uh, things that you've gone through in your life when you've been in a crossroads and you've had different perspectives coming your way regarding the will of God. And then you are having to make the ultimate decision to serve the Lord. Uh, And in Paul's case, it is to go up to Jerusalem uh, to possibly die there for the cause of Christ. Here's what the word says. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes. And from there to Patera and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, We went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is... This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, 
we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Now, if you seek to follow Christ, you're going to come to various crossroads in life. You will have to make a difficult decision. And difficult decisions in your walk with Christ, you may uh, have to make uh, those decisions that would cause your family to think you are insane. They would wonder, where's your sanity? Have you left it at the door in making this kind of decision? In Acts 21, Paul's life illustrates the painful pleasure of following Jesus. How can those two things go together? Well, they do. There's a cost involved in following Jesus, but it's the greatest pleasure and joy in all of life to submit and follow Jesus. So his friends think he's crazy for going up to Jerusalem, but think back with me. In Acts 19.21, he says that he must go up to Jerusalem. And then when you get to Acts 20, verse 22, the Bible says Paul was constrained by the Spirit of God. So not only was this in his mind, the Holy Spirit of God had led him in his heart and mind to know that that was his destination. He knew this from the Lord. So this is really the final section of Acts. And some of you are saying, thank the Lord. But it is. When you begin chapter 21, you're kind of in a travel log narrative that will take us from chapter 21 to the end of chapter 28. So this is the last section. It's the beginning of it. But don't think for a moment, just because this text reads as a travel log, they went from this place to this place to this place, it doesn't mean it's unimportant. As a matter of fact, there are incredible theological truths woven into this narrative. Just the first 14 verses. Just chock full of great stuff. Now, we know Luke was a historian, was he not? Did you notice those nautical terms that he kept using? That uh, liberal scholars who deny the inerrancy of Scripture would say, Luke didn't know what he was talking about. But the more they've studied Koine Greek, they figured out that Luke knew exactly what he was talking about, where they were sailing and what they did. And so he was a historian, but he was also a theologian, Right? And folks, I want you to understand something. When you're a historian and a theologian, every part of history is theological. God is always at work. And He's working. And so today I want you to consider a couple of things as we're unpacking these verses of Scripture. It really is the cost of Christian discipleship that we are hit with. The cost of following Christ. Doing the will of God. Listening to perspectives of brothers and sisters in the Lord. But ultimately, submitting one's life to the will of God. So, number one, consider other believers' perspectives on doing the will of God and following Christ. Do you see what's going on? He's he's moving from place to place, but there's one solid undercurrent. Where is Paul headed? He's headed to Jerusalem. And that is the undercurrent of what's going on in his life. And so he's warned everywhere he goes by different groups of disciples, that you should not go up to Jerusalem. In verses 1 through 6, we have 
the journey from Tyre to Caesarea, he leaves the Ephesian elders. Note this, remember, we, we, we dealt with this for multiple weeks, multiple sermons on this rich pastoral understanding of Acts 20. But when you get to verse 1, and when we had parted, folks, that's not the general thing that we hung out at your house last night and we went home. That word parted means that you were ripped apart. In other words, it's the strongest expression of a painful parting among friendships. So he's leaving these elders at Ephesus. And boy, this is hard. These people love Paul. And they know that this is probably the last time, according to Acts 20, they're going to see his face. But it's similar here. It is rendered a, a tearing away. And that's the picture we get. The Bible says they travel to Kos and to Rhodes and then to Patera. The, the reason Luke does it this way is because all of these are one-day journeys by ship. So they go from one place to the next place to the next place. And then they unload the ship's cargo entire. And again, all these nautical terms. And notice what he does. When he gets to Tyre, what does he go do? He goes and locates some disciples. We might call that Paul's standard procedure. That when he went back into these areas, like a magnet, he was drawn to those who knew the Lord. And he goes into the city. He starts with looking for disciples. And in Acts, back in Acts, as he travels to Antioch, he actually passes through Tyre. And we know what kind of heart he had for missions. So he preached the gospel as he passed through Tyre originally back in Acts. And now we have disciples that are in Tyre. And so Paul is going back to minister to them. He finds them and the Bible says he stays for seven days. And in the course of those seven days, the Spirit of God, and I would say evidently through the Spirit of prophecy, is continually telling Paul uh, from his disciples, you're going to have tribulations when you get up to Jerusalem. We know from other passages, again, Acts 20, Acts 21, Acts 19, that Paul is called by God to go to Jerusalem. It is the will of the Lord. Yet here we have disciples pleading with him. Uh, they understood exactly what the messages from the Spirit of God were. When Paul goes up to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. So they say, Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. Tribulation awaits you. Persecution awaits you. But what do we know about Paul? Paul is a man on a mission. He's been called by God to obey the Lord. Paul is not being disobedient to the Word here. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is giving clues to Paul. Well, you might not ought to go up there. Paul is resolved. Paul knows the will of God. He knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. He knows fully what awaits him there. Do you think the people in these areas love Paul? With what was on the horizon for him, horizon for him uh, given directly by the same Spirit that gave Paul the word to go to Jerusalem, that same Spirit is reminding Paul through those disciples and telling those disciples what's going to take place. What do the people extrapolate from all this? It's not a good idea for you to go up to Jerusalem. But the Bible says they kneel on the beach together. Another incredible farewell type of situation where the Spirit of God is at work and the church of God is surrounding Paul and they kneel on the bench, a beach and they're praying for, for the will of God. And the Bible says that Paul will depart. In 7 through 14, Paul is invited or, or arrives in Caesarea. 
And the Bible tells us that he went from Tyre to Ptolemais to Caesarea. And when he gets to Caesarea, what does he do? Like a magnet, he's drawn again to who? Believers. Wherever Paul went, he was drawn to where believers were. So in Caesarea, he comes across a man that we've already met. Y'all know him? His name is Philip. Now what would you have called him? Most of us would have probably called Philip, Philip the deacon. Because when the text says he was of the original seven, your mind should go back to Acts chapter... Acts chapter 6, right? When those first seven are chosen, and we know that that is the diaconate, the very first ones, the prototype of the deacon ministry. However, that's not how Luke addresses finding Philip. What does the Bible call him? Philip the evangelist. And why is that the case? Why is he more known for evangelism than he is being one of the first deacon? I mean, that sounds pretty sweet, right? You rub the first seven But he's known as Philip the Evangelist. And all of that is because of Acts chapter 8. And we know what happens. Philip evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch. It is one of the great evangelistic passages in the Bible. And the eunuch has gone up to give tribute to what he understands in his own understanding of who God is. And he goes up to the temple. And as he's leaving the temple, he has a scroll of Isaiah in his hands. Maybe he visited the life way. When he was in the temple court. I'm not sure. But he leaves. And he's got the scroll of Isaiah. And the Bible says that he's reading it. And Philip sees this. And he approaches him on the chariot. And Philip says, what are you reading? And he says, well, how can I know what I'm reading unless someone explains it to me? And the Bible talks about Philip going alongside, hopping up in this chariot and preaching Jesus to him. In other words, he reminds him that Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant, the king the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that the man is saved. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, what would forbid me to be baptized? And Philip said, nothing. And so he's saved. And he's baptized. What an awesome occurrence. But that's what marks Philip's life. It's good to have deacons who share Christ. Right? As a matter of fact, I'm not sure you should be a deacon if you're not willing to share your faith. So here is Philip, who's a preaching evangelist who is sharing the gospel, and he's a deacon, and the first thing on his mind is the souls of men and women who need to know Christ, and that's the distinguishing mark. But he's also got these four daughters. Your spiritual antennas go up. We were talking about the four daughters who prophesied. He has four virgin daughters. Let's stop there for a moment. Can I teach you a little something? And when we, we would say... Here were four virgin daughters. What, what would the Bible be, impl- be implying to us in using that kind of terminology? Two things are in order. First, there's obviously the point that it means they're unmarried. Okay? The assumption is they are unmarried and therefore they are virgins. <sighs> Unfortunately, in our day, we can't make that assumption anymore. Does that not grieve our hearts? It ought to. It ought to grieve all of our hearts. I want to remind you of a couple of verses since I have you discipleship now group right in front of me. Chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. For this is the will of the Lord. For this is the will of our God. All right, knock yourself in the head here, kids. This is not one of those situations 
where you pray about it and decipher, should I do this or not? And sin against my God. This text says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such things. I mean, do we ever really stop and listen to the Word of God when it comes to things like sexual immorality. And the Bible would tell us that uh, these were girls that were sexually pure. Is there something to be said about that in our day? Is there something that we need to remind our kids about? Just read over. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. Your body, if you're saved, doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And you don't join yourself with a harlot. That's what the text says. How could you ever join yourself with a prostitute when your body belongs to Christ? I plead with you, don't do it. You will make decisions, and you will make a decision in doing and giving yourself away to someone that's not your husband or wife that will mark your life for the rest of your life. I'm telling you, that will never go away. And then 1 Corinthians reminds us that there's a bond, one flesh principle. When you give yourself away, your body is given to another. There's something deep there. I don't have time to unpack that. But girls and boys, don't be stupid. Don't do it when God tells you this is the will of God for your life. So in this case, the assumption is they are unmarried and therefore they are virgins. The other thing is that their virgin status is connected with the fact that they had dedicated their lives to the Lord. And they were serious-minded young women about serving Christ. That's some pretty good vows that I think we ought to make today. That we're going to remain celibate until we're married. Sexually pure. And why are we going to do that? Because we're going to be serious about serving Jesus. Can I get one amen? Amen. Don't look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. Somebody ought to say amen. I'm telling you folks, what does sexual perversion do? It takes your mind off the things of God. And here's the deal. They were unmarried women. They were therefore virgins, and they had their focus on Jesus Christ. And that's what our focus needs to be on. Men, pornography will keep you from serving Jesus. Lust will keep you from serving Christ. Young people, those things will keep your mind. All the drugs that are out there. Don't tell me. you Look, folks, if it diverts your attention away from serving Jesus, then you need to get rid of it. You need to get rid of it. So... uh, I mean, I don't know how I got on that and preached that to you, but it was good preaching, right? But notice, they're prophetesses. These are four girls, and they prophesy. According to Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he's quoting Joel 2, 28-29, and he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. That is a direct uh, fulfillment from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. So these were daughters that were filled with the Spirit of God, and they spoke prophetic words. Uh, Here, it's actually not going to be Philip's daughters that give the prophetic word, right? It was actually Agabus. But here's what I know some people are thinking out here. What does it mean to have prophetess daughters? And since I knew you would ask me that question, I'd at least throw a couple things out there for you. First, prophecy in the early church was not necessarily someone standing up in the local assembly proclaiming the word of God to you like I'm doing. 
Because in, in, in this very passage, Agabus is not going to be preaching. He's going to give an interpersonal message prophetically given by the Holy Spirit directly to Paul. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul acknowledges that women can pray and prophesy in the local assembly as long as they have their heads covered. Why? Because it's an issue of subjection and functionality in the local body. So they had to have their heads covered. I think the reason why in this apostolic era we still had apostles that were living, today we have no modern day apostles. You understand that, right? So this was the case in the New Testament that women could be prophetesses. And I think it's, it's because very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy 2, the idea of prophecy was not an authoritative function in the sense of the way teaching was and is. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I permit not a woman to teach over the authority of a man. That has nothing to do with inferiority. It has everything to do with the way the Holy Spirit of God has the church to function. Okay? So that is clear and understanding. You say, well, that was just cultural. No, because when Paul argues, he says the man was created first in the garden, then the woman. So if you are saying it was only cultural, then you've got to rip the creation narrative out of the Bible. And you can't do that. He bases that on creation. So, uh, women during the period could prophesy. And here's the other thing. It's my conviction, and I can prove it biblically, but, but you, know, you could argue otherwise, and people do. It is my conviction that this charismatic gift to prophetesses, women, was only during the apostolic era and at the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament writings we have called the canon, that it is no longer normative in the life of the church. Am I saying it never occurred again in Acts or after? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you that it wasn't normative after this took place. Now, I got an amen from a lady, all right? So, moving, moving on. So, here we have Agapus before us. Have you ever met him before? Yes, you did. Acts chapter 11, he's the one that stands and says there's going to be a famine. In Jerusalem. So let's take this offering back to them to help them. So what Agapus does here is so peculiar, is it not? He goes up to Paul. And Paul would have had a sash wrapped around him several times with his belt. And he takes off Paul's belt. And he ties himself up with this belt. And I think even in the apostolic era when you see some kind of crazy weird things. This is kind of peculiar, isn't it? To walk, off and t walk up, take a man's belt off, and wrap yourself up with it. But Agapus really is following suit with Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Because when they were given the prophetic word, those guys did some pretty crazy things. Did they not? And so here, Agabus is acting it out. Did you think that this vividly portrayed to Paul's friends what this was going to be like? I mean, it's one thing just to say the word. It's another thing to live it out. A vivid illustration. And he vividly illustrates what actually is going to happen to Paul when he goes up to Jerusalem. So, he knows he's going up to Jerusalem. He bounds himself, binds himself with it. But is this not what God has been saying all along to Paul? He knows he's going to go up to Jerusalem. He knows there's the potential that he's going to be bound, that he's going to suffer persecution. Do you think God is in control? Listen to Isaiah 46. Beginning in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, your trans, you transgressors. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning. Y'all think God knew this? Did y'all ever read, you ever read that in the Bible? Do y'all believe our God is omniscient? That He knows all things? This text says He declares the end from the beginning. Listen. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. God knows everything that will ever be done. And that hasn't been done to this point. He knows it all. He's sovereign. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all. That's pretty inclusive. All my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the... And he just goes on to enumerate those things. So Paul knows the perspectives of the people. But he also knows the command of the Spirit of God upon his life. And he knows that God knows the beginning from the end. And the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. He knows it all. And so that moves us to be determined to follow God's will. I got me a watch. It's not, it's not my watch. I don't know what happened to my watch, but it is a watch. And so I'm able to look and say, okay, go to the next point, preacher. Here we are. So we see the perspectives of believers. Okay, don't go up to Jerusalem. But here we see the second thing, be determined to follow God's will. You think Paul's in a hurry? Yeah, he wants to get there. Remember the text? Acts 20, verse 16. He has the desire to get there before Pentecost. Yet the disciples are continually pleading with him, don't go, don't go. And isn't Paul's response amazing? What are you doing? Weeping. Breaking my heart. Paul continues, for I'm not only ready to go up to Jerusalem and be in prison, but I'm willing to die there for the cause of Christ. So Paul had the call to suffer for Christ emblazoned upon his heart and mind. Paul was not afraid of danger. He wasn't afraid of anything. I guess his biggest fear was not obeying God. And so here he is going up. And for Paul to be able to suffer for the cause of Christ was the height of being a servant of God. Remember James, Peter and James early on? And they talk about counting themselves worthy to have suffered for the cause of Christ. And now we see Paul toward the end of Acts living it out the same way the early disciples did. Being willing to give his life for the cause of Christ and being determined to obey, thus saith the Lord. So Paul was not afraid at all. What hurt him though was to watch his brother and sisters hurt. In his church family, it hurt him. He wept over that. He was heartbroken over their tears. That they had actually melted down to the point of tears to say, Do not go up to Jerusalem because we know what the Spirit of God has said. Do y'all think Paul was easy to persuade? Uh, we might say that he had a God-ordained hard head. And you say, Preacher, you do too. And yeah, I agree. But some of you do too. But he had a hard head... And he said, you're breaking my heart. Why are you doing this? I'm ready to go. And so the Bible says when they could not persuade him, they basically said, the will of the Lord be done. Father, this is in your hands. You do what you see fit. And even though Paul had a big heart, their words fell on deaf ears. Paul doesn't care about danger. He cares about doing the will of God regardless of the cost. So let me give you a few applications and we're done. You ready? First, believers in the Lord have our best interest at heart. Now this is usually the case, unless you're kind of just dead set on your own agenda, 
In most cases, when you're seeking to walk with the Lord, believers, when you're dealing with another believer who's trying to do the will of God, they're usually going to have your best interest at heart. Is that not true? I don't think their goal was to impede the will of God. I don't think they wanted to hinder the purposes of God in Paul's life. I don't think they were trying to ruin Paul's life and his obedience to Christ. What we see is what we'd say is human would be human deductions. I mean, the Spirit of God told him. This guy's going to go up to Jerusalem and be bound and, and possibly die for the cause of Christ. What's the human deduction? Don't go. And that's what they're doing in their mind. I think they thought their opinion of what Paul should do was the right thing to do. We heard the prophetic word. We know how all this is going to turn out. Paul, don't go. I want to remind you that refusing to allow other Christian friends to speak to you in your life is foolish. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if a man is not willing to take reproof, he's a fool. We all need to hear what others have to say to us, especially in an inner circle of those who you trust most and, and believers in our local assembly. But at the same time, there may be occasions when following Jesus will actually make you look foolish. Kind of absurd, right? To blow a trumpet and circle a city thinking it's going to fall down. Right? That's kind of absurd that God would ask you to do. But what do you do when God tells you to do it? You blow the trumpet. And you walk around six and seven times. And you let God knock down Jericho. You let God work. And so here's what's going on. There are occasions when you'd be foolish not to listen. But there are occasions when you will look foolish when you actually obey the Lord. So I think what we need to think about that is this. Love people. But you better love Jesus more. You do love people. But you love Jesus Christ more. And so Paul responds with sensitivity. You got to value input, but you got to follow God's will ultimately. So Paul was sensitive, wasn't he? Why would you weep and break my heart? What wins out in the end, I think, in church life is sensitivity, but also flexibility for the purposes of God. Couldn't we all get along a lot better if we did that? A sensitivity to one another, living out the will of God, but also with this emboldening, uh, flexibility to say, God, you can overrule us at any time. And when we know it's your will, we're going to do it. We're going to serve you and we're going to do it. Are these not valuable components for our own church life? A sensitivity on the one hand for the concerns and cares of others, but a flexibility for all of us to submit above all things to thus saith the Lord. And what the will of the Lord is. So believers in the Lord, our... Uh, Believers in the Lord have our best interest at heart. Number two, prayer and discernment are necessary at all times in the mission of the church. Did y'all know there's no one size fits all when it comes to doing the will of God, living for Him each and every day? And we've said this many times, 99% of what you're supposed to do is written in the Word. But obviously there's going to be some times when you have to wrestle about what to do. And I think there are times when wisdom comes from God and it reminds us of what we should or should not do. And how do you figure that out? Well, folks, it takes reading the Word and praying and having some discernment. For instance, let's say your pastor's getting ready to load up. we got 19 headed to Guatemala. Let me do a commercial. Some of you need to get up and go. We've got eight spots left to go to Guatemala. Your pastor's going. You say, well, I've never been on a foreign mission trip. It's time for you to go. All right? Some of you 
have enough money to burn a wet mule submerged in a swimming pool. It's not the money. It's stubbornness. And I want to encourage you to go and be a part of that with us. And so let's say that your pastor finds out that Westerners are being targeted in Guatemala, Chamontenango, when we go there. Well, what's going to be my response? Whoa, this may not be a good idea. If we know full well that Westerners are being targeted right now over in Guatemala, there'd be a good chance I would pull the reins and say, let's wait a little while until there's not as many targets going on. And it may be the better part of wisdom not to run headlong into that. However, would you tell even some of our own missionaries, right? Would you tell them not to go back because it's dangerous? Well, they may tell you what Paul said. They may say to you, I'm not only going back, but I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ. Wow. Wisdom. We need prudence, but we also need to let the Lord God of eternity lead us. We need a deep sense that the will of God precedes everything else in life. And finally, following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. The Lord Jesus bids us to follow him regardless of the cost through the power of the Spirit. Folks, life is short. Don't waste it. Pour yourself out for the lives of others. Obey the Lord. It's going to involve hardship. It's going to be difficult. The task is not going to be easy, but it's worth it. Even though suffering comes, it's worth it. As a matter of fact, connect the dots of glory. Connect the dots of Christ's glory on earth and the suffering he endured. And the Bible says if you're willing to live godly, you're going to suffer persecution as well. So we have to connect those dots. As John Piper commented on Acts 20, 24, when Paul says he's willing to go up to Jerusalem, he's willing to expend himself for the cause of Christ, he says this, Lord, keep me faithful to the job, then let me drop and go to my reward. That's good. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we see Christ, I guarantee you won't ever regret following him. When you see him face to face, the Lord of glory, we can see how an unbeliever may look at someone like Paul and say, you're so gifted. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews. You got this pedigree that's a mile long. Why do you want to waste your life for Jesus? That's the way the world looks at believers, right? You guys are educated, intellectual guys. You're up in the intelligentsia of the world, but you're going to waste your time on a book that's not true, and you're going to do all these things. I want to remind you of what Mark said, what Jesus said in the book, Gospel of Mark. Don't turn, just listen. Chapter 8, verse 36. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Is it worth serving Jesus? I want to remind you folks, following Jesus is costly. But according to that text, not following him is more costly. Not to submit to him as Lord is more costly. Missionary history is laden with examples of men and women who counted the cost and followed Christ. How about Jim Elliott? Y'all know the story. He decided to give his life to the Alca Indian tribe in Ecuador. And, and folks said, you're too gifted, Jim Elliott. Look what kind of writer you are. Not only are you too gifted, that's a savage tribe over there. 
Never been touched by people with the gospel. Here's what Elliot said. Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye, and from round about come over and help us. Listen to this. I dare not stay home while these Indians perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures and Moses and the prophets and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and on the dust of their Bibles. American believers have sold their lives to the service of money. And God has his rightful way of dealing with these who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. Y'all know he gave his life and four more of his friends for the cause of Christ. That guy was a preacher too. David Livingston who went into the heart of Africa, wrote the London Missionary Society and said this, So powerfully convinced am I that it is the will of the Lord that I should go to Africa, I will go no matter what opposes me. Later, after countless afflictions, he stood still uh, and would not return home. And he said this, God has called me to Africa and I'm staying right here. And how about Adoniram Judson? I chose him because he's Baptist. And here's what he said. He took his, well, here's what he did. He took his wife into the heart of Burma against the pleas of everyone associated with him. He labored for 38 years, suffering malaria, dysentery, and so many other miseries that would claim the lives of his first wife and his second wife and seven of his 13 children. As a result, however, of his resolve, today there are close to 4,000 Baptist congregations in the middle of Buddhist Burma. Isn't that unreal? Over half a million believers are represented in those congregations. Well, that's the cost that missionaries count and others like them. And that ought to provide inspiration for all of us, even when you're not making a decision about going to Burma. You're making decisions every single day about obeying the Lord. And it's worth it. It's worth it. Now the enemy would tell you to go for the lust of your flesh and live it up. Drink, be, drink eat and be merry for tomorrow you die. Just, just cater to the flesh. But that's not what the Lord and the Spirit says to you. The Spirit of the Lord says follow me. And the unspeakable joy will come later. It'll come while you obey. But ultimately our joy comes from the Lord. However, listen dearly and closely. You reject Jesus now and you will experience eternal suffering later. I'd rather have the difficulties in this life for following Jesus with an eternal reward of always being with Jesus than rejecting Him now and eternally suffering. Let's all surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship. Yeah, we're going to listen to believers' perspectives, but in the end we're going to be determined to obey the will of God. To God be the glory. Just want to bow before you, Lord, as we start to play music and have an invitation. Lord, I could see you and your spirit working in the hearts of these young people. That they may need to make a reaffirmation of where they stand in their sexual purity and in their desire to serve you. They go hand in hand. Lord, maybe they need to be on the altar today. With parents praying for the mercy of God on our kids. Lord, not just children, but how about adults? 
God, how much we're bombarded with all the promiscuity in the world. God, Father, we need your protection. Lord, we need a revival of holiness in our church. That obeying you is first priority. God, would you work in our spirits? May you work in this church today in a way that only you can do. And Father, if there's someone lost, let them think about Mark 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? May they turn and repent and trust you only for salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.